Hello everybody and welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I've got a news show for you this week. We're going to talk uh, about Firefox and how their latest version of their wonderful web browser uh, is getting tougher on web trackers. Uh, we're also going to talk about how Firefox has teamed up with ProtonVPN, the same folks that brought you ProtonMail, um, who we have interviewed on the show, by the way, Dr. Andy Yen, who's been on the show a couple times, who the founder of ProtonMail. We're going to talk about uh, how they are working with ProtonVPN to make your browsing more private. We're also going to talk about how facial recognition technology, we kind of think of that as kind of this you know, science fiction kind of a thing, and maybe, maybe it's used by law enforcement at the borders and things like that, which it is. Um, but it's now more and more starting to be used for marketing purposes, uh, meaning that you know we're all maybe used to the idea of being tracked as we surf the web now, but now we're being tracked in real life as well. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And finally, I'm going to talk about uh, a really um, impassioned speech given by Apple's CEO, Tim Cook, to uh, some uh, to a big conference in Europe and talk about some of the principles he thinks that we should all be following and, and how he thinks that we, well, big companies in particular, big tech, needs to be doing a lot more for user privacy. And uh, I'll wrap up a little tip of the week uh, telling you how you can download all of the data that Apple has on you. And so you can check that out. All right, first up, Firefox, my favorite browser. Um, Chrome, of course, is the most popular browser on the planet. And Chrome is made by Google. Uh, and it's honestly, it is a quite, it's quite a good browser. Um, it's very good in terms of uh, convenience and features. And if you've got Google products like Google Mail and Calendar and all those things, it's all very well integrated and all that kind of stuff. So I do not deny its convenience. I do not deny its security. Actually, Google does some really great secure products. Um, but when it comes to privacy, I just can't do it. <laughs> I just can't do it. Um, and Google is just privacy and Google just can't be mentioned in the same sentence. It's just an oxymoron. So, uh, I've been using Firefox for a long time and it just keeps getting better. So Firefox version 63, uh, which came out last week now has what they call enhanced tracking protection, uh, built into the browser and crucially, uh, turned on by default. So there, uh, last year they did, uh, roll out something they called tracking protection, I guess, minus the enhanced uh, which was uh, in the browser, but it was not on by default. You had to go find it out, find it, and um, turn it on. Uh, now, in the version 63, they've got a, a slightly updated version of this tracking protection, and it's built right in, and it is on by default, which is a really big deal. So, um, if you've got the latest version, and you should, if you were using Firefox, you should, because it uh, should automate, automatically be updating itself. You can go to Firefox and go to the little About menu. Uh, to make sure that you've got version 63. Um, but if you've got the version 63, you'll start seeing uh, the little information icon next to the site. Uh, you know, what next to like, there's a lock icon and then there's a little I, little little lowercase little I with a circle around it for information uh, next to the, the, the browser address. And if you click on that, you'll now see something new. Uh, so it'll tell you whether tracking protection is on or off for that site. And you can tweak it per site in case for some reason the tracking protection breaks the site and causes some part of the site not to work. Of course, that means that site will then be tracking you again as well. Uh, but you will find that they said about 2% of websites are ha uh, might experience this problem, uh, where unfortunately, whoever built the website didn't, <laughs> didn't build in the idea of it not working without tracking. Um, so in those cases, you might find the website not working. Uh, you'll also see a little nice little tab there for permissions. And you you may have noticed a lot of your web browser now saying, hey, this website would like access to your camera. This website would like access to your your microphone, things like that. If Or speakers, if you're trying to play some sound, sometimes it, it might be asking for, 
for these kind of permissions. As you can also now see with clicking that little that little eye circle with a drop down menu, you can see what permissions, if any, you have granted to this website. And you can control both of them. You can turn them off on the, the tracking or the, the permissions, which is really great. It's kind of nice to just bring that front and center. Uh, so, but the key thing is that now that tracking protection is on by default, meaning that um, it's not perfect, but Firefox is basically trying to prevent cookie tracking cookies from being dropped uh, and images from doing funky things that will allow that site to track you or the advertisers on that site to track you, which is more likely. And they're, they're, they're doing it for you by default. Now, if you followed my previous advice uh, on this show and in my blog and in my newsletter, <laughs> every place I could put it, uh, you will have already installed a couple um, things that are doing a lot of this work for you already, like a privacy badger from the uh, the privacy badger plugin from Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, and uh, uBlock Origin, uh, the ad blocker. If you've already got those installed, I'm not honestly sure how much extra this is going to do for you. But the great thing about this, and, and Steve Gibson always talks about this, that, um, he's my uh, one of my security people I like to follow on podcasts myself. Uh, he talks about the tyranny of the default, and that is, you know, most people just can't be bothered to make changes to these settings. They don't want to go look for them. They don't know what they're called. They don't. They just give up. They don't even bother. So this being on by default is actually a really big deal. Uh, and just like, you know, going and installing these plugins, you've probably heard me talk about them dozens of times on this show. Uh, have you actually gone to download and install those plugins? I hope so, but maybe you didn't. And if you didn't, if you're using Firefox, at least now you can start getting some of those protections automatically built in. Uh, the other thing you might notice, if you go into the, uh, under settings in Firefox and look under security and privacy settings, it looks a little bit different now there too. Uh, you can see some block um, selections there. You could uh, one is for all detected trackers. You can block those. You can either set that to always or only in private windows. I would definitely set it to always. Uh, you can. It's based on a block list that's um, uh, that's public, that's maintained and kept up to date by some really nice folks uh, that Firefox is uh, leaning on for that. Uh, but if for some reason, you can either add or change that uh, your blocking list. Uh, and then finally, the second option is third-party cookies. And I have these always off by default. And this is the one that might break some websites and maybe up to 2% of them. So it should be very rare. But if for some reason you get to a site where this is a problem, you can just go to that little eye menu that I mentioned above, and you can turn off tracking for that for that site, and that hopefully will fix it. And if it doesn't fix it, turn that tracking right back on. <laughs> so it's worth trying just to see if that will fix the website and make it load properly. Um, but if for some reason that doesn't do it, you know, then certainly turn that tracking right back on and figure out either go to a different website or try to find out what else is going on. And by the way, that's true of those other plugins as well. Uh, uBlock Origin and Privacy Badger. Sometimes those sites, those uh, protections will break sites too. So, you know, if you go to some website that you know, you can tell it's not loading properly. It looks all messed up somehow or some major chunks are missing that you know should be there, that kind of thing. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that can happen with some of these tracking protectors. So you might want to go disable those uh, and see if that doesn't improve things. And again, if it doesn't, put them right back on. Okay, so the other thing I want to mention about Firefox, and this is a neat little story, they're partnering with ProtonVPN, and that's the same people behind ProtonMail. And ProtonMail is, the I think, now the largest secure email service on the planet. Uh, they're very, they've gotten very popular. Uh, I use them uh, and they've got a free tier, but I use the, I, I pay for, I think the $50 a year version of their, of their, pro, uh, their email product because I want to support them. Uh, they're doing some great work. Again, we've talked to Andy Yen, who's the CEO and founder uh, of Proton Mail. Uh, we've had him on the show. I'd love to get him back actually sometime soon. Maybe we could talk about this in particular, but it's really interesting. So basically Firefox 
is a nonprofit organization, but they do still have to make money. They've got employees. They've got things they've got to do, and uh, that costs money. Uh, and where they get a lot of their money is by selling the right to have Google be your primary search engine by default in the Firefox browser. And again, the whole tyranny of the default thing, most people will never change that. And honestly, most people just like Google search. Um, it's the one everybody goes to, um, but you can change it. There's nothing, no, no reason you can't change it, but by default, that's the one that comes installed and, and ready to use when you first install Firefox. So, and Google pays for that privilege. Um, so ironically, Google, who has the most popular browser on the planet, uh, and it was not, <laughs> not that great on privacy, um, is, you know, helping to fund and keep afloat Firefox, its major competitor uh, in the independent browser space. So anyway, as part of that, I think Firefox is writing on the wall and they would like to find other sources of revenue. So they've partnered with ProtonVPN and uh, a small subset of people will start getting these little pop-ups um, offering the service. And all it really is, it's a way to sign up for the ProtonVPN service through Firefox. Uh, and when you do it that way, as opposed to going to ProtonVPN directly and buying the service, uh, Firefox gets a big chunk of that revenue. Um, so, which is going to give Firefox another revenue stream. And I'm sure that they're dying to have uh, other sources of income besides Google. So uh, for, for that and many reasons, it would be a great way to support Firefox and keep those guys afloat if you see this. And it's a great way to protect your privacy. Um, so all it really does is, is it allows you to purchase the Proton VPN, VPN product through Firefox or through Mozilla, who's the parent company who uh, creates Firefox. Um, and otherwise, it's I think it's identical to buying the service directly from Proton Mail. Um, but this way you can support Firefox. I think it's about 10 bucks a month, which might sound a little pricey. Um, if you've ever looked at VPNs before, of course, there's a lot of free ones, which I definitely do not recommend you use. Uh, but there are some cheaper VPNs out there that are actually quite good. ExpressVPN is probably the most popular. Uh, it's supposedly very good about your privacy as well. And in other words, the VPN itself could be keeping all sorts of logs and things on you, but ExpressVPN and NordVPN, N-O-R-D VPN, those are probably the two most popular ones that are that I would recommend as far as secrecy or privacy goes. Um, they do cost less. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. But um, ProtonVPN uh, is a great product, and the more people that support it, the better it will be, and maybe uh, they will actually be able to lower that price if they get enough people signed up for it. So anyway, it's, I really like to see these kind of partnerships, and that's a to me, that's a match made in heaven. Now, if they can just get together with Cloudflare, if I can get uh, John Graham coming and those guys all get together, it seems like they could just come up with some killer products that all just seamlessly work together. All right, next up, I want to talk to you about uh, this article I ran across in New York Magazine about facial recognition. And this doesn't surprise me at all, uh, but I wanted to make sure that you're aware that this is happening. And this sort of practice is actually on the rise. And it's something that we've just got to, as a society, as a democracy, as a country or whatever, come to terms with and start laying down some regulations around this sort of thing, because right now it's just, it's the wild, wild west. And because most of these things happen without your knowledge, since there is very little transparency around these things, we as uh, citizens are not well armed or well informed to make good choices and to push back on this sort of thing. So let me just read you a little bit from this article from, uh, again, this is from New York Magazine. 
Facial recognition software, which has been in development since the 1960s and has been gaining popularity with police for more than a decade, has taken off with retailers and event spaces during the last couple of years, consultants say. It's marketed to them as an unparalleled tool for cutting down on shoplifting and sold to the public as a security tool, helping identify would-be terrorists at sports games, for, exam- for instance, or protecting consumers against identity theft by making sure that they are who they say they are. And it's almost, com- But it, the problem is it's almost completely unregulated. Quote, the technology is in some environments where I'm sure millions of people in a year or even in a month are subjected to it, says Donna Lieberman, executive director of the New York Civil, Li- Civil Liberties Unions. Again, quote, nobody has any idea that it's happening or what data has been co- being collected or how it's being stored or for how long or who has access to it, unquote. On Wednesday, New York City Councilman Richie Torres who represents the Bronx, introduced a bill aimed at changing this. It would require businesses to start telling the public if they're using facial recognition, how long they're storing it, and who they're sharing it with. Torres says he was inspired to put the bill out after he learned about Madison Square Garden's use of facial recognition in the spring. Quote, it's such a no-brainer and a small measure, a baby step, Lieberman said. I think it's necessary but not sufficient, unquote. Adrian Weidman, a retail consultant based in Minneapolis, said most stores from bodegas to shopping malls already have most of the technology in place to start tracking customers. Not just the scores of security cameras in an average big box store, but also the cameras inside digital signs and kiosks, which show whether shoppers are paying attention to ads. Quote, it's the same camera lens, Weidman said. All it takes to upgrade is a piece of software. The software often comes with a database of criminals or known shoplifters, which comes from combining the shoplifter registries of participating stores. It's unclear exactly what it takes to be put in these databases, let alone how to get your name removed. Torres' bill, if it gains any traction, is likely to come against serious lobbying effort by the tech industry. Several states, including Alaska, Connecticut, Montana, New Hampshire, and Washington, have considered similar privacy laws within the last couple of years, but none but Washington have followed through. Trade groups and companies like Facebook and Google have come out in full force. Facebook has been especially aggressive, according to a report from the Center for Public Integrity. The interest of Google and Facebook in unregulated face recognition systems and retail settings may not be entirely about their concern for security of brick-and-mortar stores. In the future, facial recognition technology could also be used for marketing, helping, helping stores track customers in real life the way online retailers track them with cookies. There's no evidence that this is happening so far, but Weedman, the consultant, said that he's already seen companies merge their security and marketing divisions. On a project with Home Depot last year, for instance, he helped the marketing team use security footage to track customers through the stores and figure out what products they were browsing. Nobody ever thought about linking the two, he said. Facial recognition, he said, along with location tracking on smartphones, could make the physical cookie possible. All right, so let's unpack that a little bit. So... The physical cookie is what I was talking about tracking in real life. So when you tr- when you go on the web, and that's why we block third-party cookies, these websites, these tra- these ads, generally speaking, drop cookies on your machine so that if I go to site A and it's showing an ad for something there and it knows what kind of things I was looking on on site A and then I go to site B uh, and there's an ad there from, a, from the same firm, and by the way, Google owns most of these ads, so there usually is the same firm. They know that on site A, I was looking at something else, so now they can start showing me ads for that on site B. Surely you've already seen this happen, where you go and search for something in Google on one day, like you're looking for used cars or a new appliance or something like that, and then you go to other websites, and all of a sudden you're seeing all these ads for cars and appliances. 
that is no coincidence. Uh, okay, sometimes it's a coincidence. But, but And if you've got all the tracking protections on, then it hopefully is a coincidence. But if you don't, if you're just out there just surfing the web like a regular person, you don't have any tracking technology in place, they're, they're doing this on purpose. That's exactly why they're doing this, because they want to market things to you that they think you're interested in. Uh, unfortunately, they're also saving all that information into massive databases and dossiers and trading it amongst themselves and learning more about you than you probably know about yourself. <laughs> so... Uh, what this is now saying with the facial recognition technology is that we've already got cameras everywhere. Um, you've probably seen them. If you've ever looked up at a department store and see those weird kind of smoky globes or half domes that are on the ceiling, those are cameras. Uh, they're, those are the big cameras. <laughs> uh, cameras have gotten really small and they've embedded them all over the place. Uh, as this article talked about, they're embedding them in, in uh, billboards and ads now just to see who's actually looking at them, right? Because the facial technology can actually see who is looking at it and for how long they're looking at that ad. Um, once your face is printed, once that biometric is somehow in some database, they now know that that face is you. And you can bet that these guys are going to be buying and selling that information left and right. So... Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Minority Report, um, uh, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I recommend you see it just for this purpose. Uh, there's a you know, you know there's parts in the movie where Tom Cruise is uh, the main character is walking around, and as he's walking around, the advertisements on these digital billboards greet him by name <laughs> and change their ads accordingly. Um, that is where we're, that's where we're leading, um, and it's not good. So <laughs> anyway, I just want to read this article because it's. It's important that we understand these kind of things are happening and they're, they're really starting to take off and they're, they're ha happening without really much input from us, probably because they know that if they asked us, we would say no. So they're just not asking. All right. So one more thing, and this I'll end on a positive note, uh, and that is that um, Tim Cook, who is the CEO of Apple, and he took over after Steve Jobs' uh, untimely death a few years back, um, was gave us keynote speech at the 40th International Conference of Data Protection and Privacy Commissioners. Uh, I believe it was held in Italy. Um, if you haven't seen it, you've probably, you may have seen, well, you may have seen some news about it, but probably not. Uh, I see it because of the tech circles that I run in, but uh, it probably didn't make the nightly news. Uh, nevertheless, I've got a link to the, the video in the show notes. I recommend you go look at it. It's only about 19 minutes long, and it's, it's really interesting to see. Uh, and I just want to, uh, I want to quote you just a few things um, from his speech and then outline what he said were the four key principles for, for the tech industry on how to treat uh, user data and user privacy. So let me, let me just read a little bit from his speech. We need to keep making progress now more than ever because these are transformative times. Around the world, from Copenhagen to Chennai to Cupertino, new technologies are driving breakthroughs in humanity's greatest common projects. From preventing and fighting disease, to curbing the effects of climate change, to ensuring every person has access to information and economic opportunity. At the same time, we see vividly, painfully, how technology can harm rather than help. Platforms and algorithms that promised to improve our lives can actually magnify our worst human tendencies. Rogue actors and even governments have taken advantage of, uh, of user trust to deepen divisions, incite violence, and even undermine our shared sense of what is true and what is false. This crisis is real. It is not imagined or exaggerated or crazy. And those of us who believe in technology's potential for good must not shrink from this moment. Now more than ever, as leaders of governments, as decision makers in business, and as citizens, we must ask ourselves a fundamental question. What kind of world do we want to live in? 
obviously he says a lot more than that and it's really worth listening to and he does a great job with that speech um but in the middle of the speech he outlines what he calls the four uh, four key principles that we should follow and they go like this uh, first of all companies should challenge themselves to de-identify customer data and not collect data or or not collect that data in the first place which is so true um so again the problem is this is directly in um conflict with companies like google and facebook and twitter and other companies that are who make their money based on ad revenue. Uh, they need to know, or they believe they need to know as much about you as humanly possible uh, to increase the value of how well they can target ads to people. So that, you know, and it doesn't, it shouldn't escape you that, that Apple, uh, this is not Apple's business model. And they're making it very painfully clear that they believe that without mentioning them by name in, in, in this speech, that so many other companies are the exact opposite. So, you know, you got to take this with a little bit of grain of salt, knowing that Apple is really playing up its um, advantage in this particular area because they don't need to make money off of ads. They make their money off their hardware. All right. So that was step one. And, you know, de-identify customer data means, okay, yeah, there's a lot of great info out there. And we actually could and probably should be using a lot of that data to make things better. That's fine. But where it crosses the line is where we keep track of who sent that data or what, who, who, who owns that data, who, what data who that data corresponds to. Let me put it that way. Uh, we don't necessarily have to know those things. We can still collect all this data anonymously and in aggregate um, to come up with some really great data and metrics and trends and things that would allow these products to improve. That, that's all well and good. Uh, the problem is when you don't de-identify or anonymize that data properly, and that data can then be tied back to an individual person. And now we're talking about privacy. And of course, he makes the, the key point there that, you know, you shouldn't collect any data at all if you don't need it. And what he doesn't say, and maybe, or maybe he goes on to say this, is you shouldn't keep it any longer than absolutely necessary. All right. So that was, that was just point one. Let's go to point two and his four key principles. Two, users should always know what data is being collected from them and what's being collected for. This is the only way to empower users to decide what collection is le legitimate and what isn't. Anything less is a sham. Now, again, that's a really big dig at companies like Google and Facebook who use a lot of what we call dark patterns to get you to turn over a lot of information for, that only benefits them or mostly benefits them. A lot, they will call it customization. They will call it personalization. They, they, they want to improve your experience. Uh, that's the, how they couch a lot of this language. They turn these things on by default. You have to find them and turn them off if you don't want to do it. Um, and they, And if you didn't know they were doing it, you wouldn't even know to go look for the setting to turn it off. Um, and that's kind of his point without this transparency, without us being very, very clear. And of course, you know, it's all buried in a privacy policy somewhere that you clicked. Okay. Or accept, right. But who reads those things are way too long to be read. And then they'll think that's an accident. So, uh, they're, they're trying to obfuscate this. They're trying to, to make it very hard to understand what is being collected about you and what's being done with that information. But without knowing that we can't make informed decisions. Okay. Part three, companies should recognize that data belongs to users and we should make it easy for people to get a copy of their personal data as well as correct and delete it. Uh, another great point. So you should be able to see what they have on you. I should be able to go easily and see what I've got. Now, I don't mean like that stupid Lexus Nexus report that I ordered. There was 320 pages long front and back and impossible to digest. Um, there's got to be a better way for me to see what kind of information is th that they have on me. Uh, to be able to correct that information, if they get something wrong, 
uh, and ideally to delete that data if I don't want them to have that data. And that would have to go, that would have to translate to anybody else that they have shared that data with. Um, and that's, that's hard. Uh, and it's going to be really hard to dial that back because they're going full tilt with it right now. So to somehow, you know, turn the clock back on that is going to be difficult for those companies. Um, and Apple knows this. And again, they're playing to their advantage here, but they're right. Um, this is what we need. Okay. Uh, number four in his list, the last one. Everyone has the right to security of their data. Security is at the heart of all data, privacy, and privacy rights. Um, so that's an interesting point. And that actually brings me to a rebuttal of this from a company called Purism. Now, I was actually at a conference recently, and I met the CEO of Purism. He gave a really good talk. Um, and uh, I will be interviewing him for the show next week. Uh, cross my fingers. Hopefully nothing falls through. He's got some really interesting perspectives on this, and we're going to get that on the record. In response to Tim Cook's keynote speech, uh, they took issue with that fourth point, and, and, and I'm going to read a little bit from uh, that press release from Purism uh, to, to, to uh, give you an idea of what I mean. It says, it's in Tim Cook's fourth principle where the, on the surface it seems Purism and Apple seem eye to eye, and on the surface we do. But when you dig into the principle, our paths start to diverge. Compare these two statements. Purism, right to protect personal data. A person who owns and control, controls their own master keys to encrypt all data and communication, nobody else. An Apple statement. Everyone has a right to security of their data. Security is at the heart of all data privacy and privacy rights. We agree with Apple that security is at the heart of all data privacy and privacy rights. Where we disagree is in who holds the keys. Your data isn't truly private or secure if someone else holds the keys. It's true that Apple goes to great lengths to lock down their devices from attackers, but like with Google and other proprietary vendors, those locks also lock you out. This isn't just a hypothetical argument about freedom. Apple's decision to hold all the keys to their hardware has real-world impacts on freedom and human rights. Alex Stamos, a Stanford professor, previously chief security officer at Facebook, gives a great example of the real-world impacts these locks can have. And now I'm quoting uh, Mr. Stamos. It says, I agree with almost everything Tim Cook said in his privacy speech today, which is why it is so sad to see the media credulously covering his statements without the context of Apple's actions in China. The missing context? Apple uses hardware-rooted DRM to deny Chinese users the ability to install the VPN and end-to-end -end encryption messaging apps that would allow them to avoid pervasive censorship and surveillance. Apple moved iCloud data into the PRC-controlled joint venture with unclear impacts. Okay, so let me back out of all that quoting. Um, two big things there. First of all, who holds the keys? And on this, I agree. Um, Apple's iCloud service is extremely convenient, and Apple loves convenience. They don't want to inconvenience their users. They want things to just seamlessly work. And all any data you put in your calendars or your, your mail, um, documents and things, any of those things that you uh, sync with iCloud is all encrypted, I'm sure, and stored encrypted in Apple servers, and then it's synced with all your various devices, which is great, very convenient. However... Apple's the one that holds the keys to that encryption, meaning that if law enforcement were to come knocking, and I'm sure they would only do this with a valid warrant, Apple's good about that, but if they did come knocking and said, we need to see that data, Apple could turn that data over to them because they have the key. Now, if someone just you know broke into Apple servers, like a hacker or something, and tried to get to that data, it should be encrypted, and they should not be able to do anything with it. Um, but Apple can. Uh, if necessary, Apple could look at whatever data you've got stored in iCloud. Now, I understand 
the convenience of this. Um, but it's weird because in uh, many other ways, Apple's encryption stuff, including like if you encrypt your uh, your hard drive with FileVault, there is an option. You can find it and select it where you say, I want to hold the key to this and I don't want it to give it to you. Um, and that means that if you lose that key and you forget to enter it or, uh, or, or you need to re-enter that key to unlock your hard drive and can't, that data is gone. Apple cannot help you. And that is something Apple doesn't want. I understand that. So they don't want those angry calls from customers saying, hey, I lost my encryption key. Could you help me get my data back? And they're going to have to say no, because they can't. That's the way, that's the whole point. Um, and so uh, with iCloud, that's like what, like the last vestige of uh, the area that Apple's data, where they keep the key. And uh, I think that has to change. I think like uh, FileVault, they need to at least give the user the option to provide their own key. Now, again, tyranny of the default. No one's going to do this probably but me <laughs> and people like me that are tech savvy um, and uh, are really uptight about privacy. Nevertheless, it should be an option. Um, so there's that. And then there's then there's the really sticky issue that they bring up with China. And Google's had this problem and many other co- companies have had the similar issues. Um, and there's some ethical issues there. I mean, China is a massive, massive consumer market. Um, and it's really hard to, to not want to sell in that market. And in order to sell in that market, you've got to follow that country's rules and regulations. And, you know, and you might think, okay, that's fine. Every country has got sovereignty and they should be able to write the rules and regulations for their country. But China in particular is really against their users uh, having control of data and being able to get to the websites and information that they want to get to that are outside the country. So, you know, I don't want to wade too far into that debate because it's really murky and it's really gray. Uh, but it, I just want to let in that they do have a good point, And maybe we can get into that and discuss that a little bit with uh, Todd Weaver um, when we do the interview with him. All right. So that's going to wrap up the show. I just want to give you the tip of the week. And this is pretty straightforward. Um, uh, Apple, uh, I think you've been able to do this for some time now, but they've simplified the process and put out a press release. And I've talked about downloading all the Google data that they have and all the Facebook data they have just so that you can, you know, look for it yourself, kind of dig around through it. There's going to be a lot of stuff there and there's no way you can go through it all. But it's just it's good to know what they know about you. Um, so just as a educational uh, experiment as a thought experiment. Um, uh, I have recommended that you go and download that data and Apple is the same. You should do the same thing with Apple as well. Um, so you can do this yourself. You can go to, um, privacy. I think it's, let me look here. It's privacy.apple.com. Um, and if you go to that website, uh, one of the things you will see there, uh, is an option to download your data. And uh, if you want the full instructions, if you're on my newsletter, you already already got it because I should be sending that out uh, Sunday night. So if you're on the newsletter, you already got this. But you could also go to my website and go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and you can look at the blog entry there. It should be the top article uh, that will walk you through it and give you all the links that you need. But the basic way it basically works is you go to the Apple privacy site. You say, I want my data. You go and check off all the data you want, including all of it, if you really want to. And I'll tell you why you might not want to do all of it. Um, for, for some of it's like your mail. I mean, you've already got your mail. So you could, and you should just assume that if you're using Apple's iCloud mail service, they have all your mail. So you, uh, you, know, you don't need to necessarily download that. And that would take a long time and it'd be a lot of data. Um, same thing with any photos and things you put in iCloud. You just, you should just realize that that's there, but there's a lot of other marketing data, uh, and other data they've got about you that you might not be thinking about. That's the stuff you should really concentrate on. And it's actually broken up into two sections. If you look at the website, everything at top on the top section is probably what you want. The stuff at the bottom, I don't think there's any point in downloading it. It's huge. 
and you you have that data and you should already realize what that data is. But it's your call. Anyway, so you go in there, you check off what you want, you click a link to continue. They make absolutely sure that you are you so that it's not somebody else trying to get this data. Um, so you might have to verify, uh, go through a couple steps to verify who you are. Um, and then you say, you know, then you click this final link and then they'll say, okay, we'll send it to you when it's ready. And they, so somewhere in the background, Apple is collating all this data, putting it all together for you. And then eventually they'll send you an email and give you a download link. And then you download that and you get a whole bunch of zip files. So uh, I'm not going to say it's easy. There's a lot of stuff there and there's zip files within zip files within zip files. It's, it's, it's even for Apple, it's, it's convoluted. I really honestly wish that, that there was, you know, that Apple would also provide you a nice little, you know, front end that organized everything in a, in a meaningful way. Um, but as it is, it's just a bunch of files. So nevertheless, I recommend you do it and just check it out. Just see what's there. Uh, just so you know, and get, and get more informed. All right. That's going to wrap up our show. And, uh, last week I asked, uh, if you would, if you've, if you have bought the book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons and enjoy it, uh, to go leave a really nice review on Amazon. I would still like you to do that. But this week I'd like you to do something else. Um, asking you to go and rate the podcast. So wherever you get your podcast from, uh, whether it be iTunes or Google play or Stitcher or wherever that might be, I would very much appreciate if you would go and uh, post a nice review there as well. Uh, I'm trying to just raise some awareness and reviews are something that a lot of, not a lot of people do. Um, uh, so I'd like to just encourage you to go do that. It shouldn't take you very long and I would deeply appreciate it. And, you know, it'll help me find other, other people and they'll get a better idea of what this is all about. So, uh, doesn't have to be long. Doesn't have to be involved. Um, but I would appreciate if you just go and leave a nice review on wherever it is you get your podcast from. I would appreciate that. All right. That's going to wrap it up. Happy Halloween, everybody. That's coming up soon. Oh, by the way, I heard this really interesting thing. I'm <laughs> sorry to keep, uh, I saw some article saying that they're considering, uh, or maybe somebody's pushing to change the date of Halloween to be the last Saturday of October. Um, instead of whatever random night it happens to be, you know, October 31st happens to fall on because, you know, that's no fun. Uh, even this Wednesday, I'm, I'm actually going to be out myself. I won't even be able to hand out candy because I've got something going on that night. Uh, whereas if it was on a Saturday night, guaranteed, I could plan that for, for a lot better. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. So anyway, happy Halloween to everybody out there. Hope you have a good time and uh, stay safe and don't get caught with your garbage. Down.